0: I invite you to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, Chapter Six. We are going to today study the last three verses in this epistle. To give that context, we will reread verses 11 through 18 together. Galatians 6, starting at verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, today we've come to the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians. We've been at this letter on and off for a year and five months. We started on June 12th, 2022, and that actually, come to think of it, makes it exactly a year. Five months. It's a long time to spend on one letter, but hopefully we can all agree that it was time well spent. Although this letter is almost 2,000 years old, the questions that it addresses are just as relevant today as they were back then. Questions, many different questions, and the biggest one of all is how do you become right with God? How does someone become right with God? There is a God. He is the judge. All of us will have to give account of our lives to him. All of us live our lives in his presence, whether we believe in him or not. So how do you become right with that God? How do you belong to his people? Now, many people would think A church member. Live a good life and you should be fine. But that is actually not how that works. It's not just by being a church member. In fact, sometimes church members can be the most deluded on this whole question. Think about it. The um, opponents of Paul, the people that caused him to write this letter, were themselves church members, so to speak. They were part of the Old Testament church of God. They were part of the Jewish people. But they thought that what God really wanted was law-keeping. And they said the, the sign of that, obviously, is circumcision. So they taught that all people who come to faith need to be circumcised. They need to place themselves under God's Old Testament law, the civil, ceremonial, moral law. And then they said, then that's how you become right with God. So it begins with circumcision, and that became the flashpoint for them. Now, in this letter, Paul has shown that what makes someone part of God's people is faith. Faith in God's promises. And he says it's always been that way. Those promises were expressed in in their fullest through Jesus Christ. Through Christ, God has redefined who His people are. And that's also how we will approach this Last part of Paul's letter today, keeping in mind that through Christ, God has redefined who his people are, and we'll see that he has redefined the true Israel, and he has redefined the true Israelite. So turn with me, if you will, to this text of ours, and we we look at verse 16, and we see that it refers to a rule. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now you might wonder, what is this rule? The whole letter, in a sense, has been about how, how Christians, in a sense, are, are not made Christians by following rules. They're not made Christians only by following a law. And now he says, all for, those, for all those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. But you notice it does actually use the word rule here. It does not use the word law. And that's deliberate because the word rule here in context means standard, right? It means standard. So this rule refers to this standard, the new standard by which Christians live. And that is what he's referring to. All those who walk by this standard, peace and mercy be upon them. So it doesn't matter whether or not you're circumcised. What matters is that you are a new creation. And that's what the word standard refers to. It's uh, looking back to verse 15 here, he says, Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And all who walk by that, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So he's he's referring to a new creation, and that includes everything. It's not just regeneration, the implantation of new spiritual life by the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't refer only to the faith that comes out of that regeneration. It refers to the entire transformation of a believer, the entire transformation that a believer undergoes over time. So he says it's not what you do. It's not circumcision that counts. It's not even being uncircumcised that counts. Circumcision is completely irrelevant, he says. What matters is a new creation. Or as the Catechism puts it, it's about being redeemed by the blood of Christ and being renewed by the Spirit of Christ. It's about having a new relationship with God. And when you have that, with that comes a new standard and a new way of living, a new way of looking at life. And this new creation is expressed then in thought, in word, and in deed. And that's what it means to walk by this rule. He's taking everything that it means to be a Christian, and he's saying, you know, this is a walk. There are ongoing consequences for your day-to-day life in this. Now you might wonder, how does that then tie into the Old Testament? He's referring here to the Israel of God, so there must be some sort of a connection to the Old Testament people of God. But what is that connection? What does he mean when he refers to the Israel of God? And there are two ways of understanding that phrase, Israel of God. If you look at verse verse 16, it says, all who... Walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now there's two ways of understanding that. The first, both of them, by the way, are grammatically possible, so so there is a diversity of opinion on this. And the first interpretation is to see this as two separate groups of people. So you get the Israel of God in the Old Testament here, and then you get the people who who are the new creation on this side, and then then Paul would be saying, peace and mercy be upon... This, the church, the new people, and upon God's old people, the Israelites. And maybe when you read that the first time, that seems to be the most logical. But it's actually unlikely. And the reason for that is because the whole point of the gospel was to unite people into one new creation, not to divide them into two groups. You remember Galatians 3 verse 28 said that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And all of these blessings, these blessings cannot go to two separate groups. These blessings only go to those who are in Christ. So it's not likely that this is two separate groups that he's talking about here. And beyond that, if he talks about an Israel of God, that means that there must also be an Israel which is not of God. That's what that implies. And that's exactly the point he makes later on in Romans 9. You know, when, when Paul wrote Galatians, he was in a big hurry. He had a limited amount of time to get his thoughts down. And later on, when he writes his letter to the Romans, he comes back to a lot of these same themes, but he has more time to unfold them, which is why that, that letter also has a different tone and it's, it's, it's longer. So in Romans, he, he talks about the same issue again in Romans 9, and he says, Look, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's quoting from the Old Testament there. And that, this means, says Paul, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. Now, what's his point? The point is that Abraham had multiple descendants. Now, you know that, right, boys and girls? What was Abraham's first son? It wasn't Isaac. It was Ishmael right? Through Hagar. Ishmael was also a descendant of Abraham, just as much as Isaac was. And if if all you need to do is to be a descendant of Abraham according to the flesh, then anyone who descended from Abraham belongs to God's people. But we know that wasn't true. Ishmael was not one of God's people because he didn't have faith. So this, this phrase, Israel of God, cannot refer Only to people who are Jewish by descent. That is not the Israel of God anymore in the way that it was in the Old Testament. And that leaves us with only one other possible interpretation, which is that it is actually one group that he's referring to. So then to to kind of reword that a little bit, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, that is, upon the Israel of God. So, all who walk by this will peace and mercy be upon them, and peace and mercy be upon them, the Israel of God. They are the Israel of God. there's only one group of people, there's only one true people of God, there is only one spiritual Israel, and they are united, not in circumcision, not. In custom, not in habit, not in ritual, not in observance of the law, but they are united in Christ. And having said this, we should not think that Paul is teaching anything new here. This this is really what he's doing because he keeps on going back to the Old Testament, right? He's simply drawing out the implications of what God had said all along. God has always demanded faith from his people. The entire Old Testament is witness to that. So this phrase Israel of God implies continuity with the past, and that's his point. He's not he's saying to them, Look, I'm not teaching you anything new here. We are connected to this Old Testament Israel. But where it breaks with the past is in this idea that you can be a part of the people of God in name only. And that is very relevant to us today. It requires more than a name, it requires more than circumcision. It requires faith, faith in Jesus Christ, in his sacrificial death, in the power of his resurrection, in the new life that he gives. It's about Christ. Jesus Christ died on a cross for sinners. The death of Christ enables a relationship with God. It takes away the sin that stood between us and God. And with that relationship comes a new life, and with that new life comes a new way of looking at everything, and, and that grows on you over time. You start to realize that your own works merit nothing. Your achievements merit nothing. Your work merits nothing. Your relationships merit nothing. The only thing that you've ever brought into this relationship is your own sin and misery. That's what we come to God with. And when we acknowledge that, when we come to Christ with our sin and misery, then we are forgiven And we are renewed and we become a new creation which then expresses itself in thought, word, and deed. And that is conversion. And there are wonderful blessings that come with that. The blessing of peace with God and mercy from God. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. But notice that these blessings are the consequence of salvation. A very important point. This is the consequence of salvation. This is not the cause. And for that very reason, these blessings are not available for those who do not walk by that rule. God's grace is unmerited, but it requires us to respond with faith. If the faith doesn't show in our works, then we cannot lay claim to this blessing either. Then we don't have peace with God. And there are a lot of misunderstandings on this point. Because often when people think about peace, what do they think about? They think about a feeling of peace, don't they? About a peaceful feeling. This is a peaceful place. And the the Bible does use it that way. Paul does so himself in Philippians 4 verse 7. He refers to the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. That's peace in, in what we call its subjective sense. In the sense that we experience it. But that peace does not exist in a vacuum. True peace is, there is also peace in the objective sense of the word. So the word peace does not just refer to a feeling, it refers to a state. It describes how we stand in relation to God. That is the way that the word is being used here. So peace here refers to the peace that exists between God and his people. The peace that Paul describes in Romans 5, verse 1, when he writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the peace that Christ achieved for us, the peace that is embodied in him. He himself is our peace, says Paul in Ephesians 2, verse 14. And so the point is this peace really exists. It is objective. It does not just exist in your mind. It is not just an opinion that you hold. It is a real objective peace that exists between a believer and God. And because it is an objective peace, it is also something that you can grow to understand on an emotional level. And um, there's different degrees of that. You you grow into that understanding over time as your faith matures. Paul um, refers to this... Um, process in a sense you could say in Romans 8 verse 6 he writes for to set the mind on the flesh is death but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace so he's comparing two different mindsets here the, the way of thinking that is flesh and a way of thinking that is spirit and he's saying once you begin to understand what God has done for you you uh, grow in this area you begin to understand and experience peace and this is actually a deeply practical thing. It is not about escape into some mystical trance. You know, it's really fascinating if you look at the culture that we live in today. Um, one of the characteristics of heathendom is this, this idea that there is a, a spiritual class and a, uh, an ordinary class. And you see that reflected today too in our post-Christian age where more and more people go to look for that which is sacred, that which is holy, and they, they go to a guru or they, they try to get themselves into an alternate state of mind or, or they think that, that, that it's all something mystical. And uh, there's a part of us that, that, in a sense, wants that as well. We always want spiritual things to be different from daily life. But that's exactly what peace isn't. That's the whole point here is that peace is something that is um, an integral part of a day-to-day existence. It's an attitude found in day-to-day life. It is the fruit of the new creation. It is the fruit of the Spirit. Think about Galatians 5 verse 22, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And when God's people individually live in this peace, when they grow in that, when they understand that, then the church as a whole lives in peace as well. Which is certainly not, was not the case with the Galatians. They didn't have that peace. They were torn apart by a false teaching that had robbed them of their peace. So what you believe has real consequences for how you live and how you experience life. And God calls us to understand this peace and to live out of it. Colossians 3 verse 15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful, he says. So does that thankfulness characterize your life? Thankfulness for what you have in the gospel is that reflected in a life of peace? Peace is not meant to be kept to ourselves. In Romans 12, verse 18, we're reminded if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that can be hard sometimes. You cannot take responsibility for the conflict or upheaval caused by others, but have you, insofar as it depends on you personally, lived peaceably with all? Have you done that? Is there peace in your family? Have you lived out of that peace? Have you led out of that peace? When your children look at you, what comes to mind first? Peace? Or do they see stressed, overworked, angry, uptight? We all go through periods of busyness, but what is the general trend of your life? If you were to die tonight, what would your family say at your funeral next week? We've had a few funerals in the broader um, church community lately. So what if yours was next? Think about that for a minute. What would would people say about you when they spoke at the funeral? How would they remember you? What would come to mind first? Would they say that you were a person of peace or not? Would they say that you lived out of the peace that you knew that you had in Christ or not? What would your kids say about you? Now oh, Maybe you don't know. Maybe there is no peace in your life. And if that's so, what can you do? Keep going back to the gospel. Keep reminding yourself over and over. In Romans 15 verse 13, Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So he's, in a sense, saying this is a matter of faith. To live out of peace is especially important for the men in our midst. If you are married, you have a position of leadership in the relationship. Dear brothers, you cannot lead out of emptiness. Your life has to be built on the gospel. And this becomes even more important if you have children. We have an epidemic in society of men who cannot lead. Men who will not lead because they don't know how to lead. And sometimes you find traces of that in the church as well. Why do men not know how to lead? Because they are not grounded in the peace that God provides through Jesus Christ. They know about it, they believe it, but they're not fully grounded in it. God promises that peace to his people, Israel, and he has redefined Israel to be all those who belong to him through Jesus Christ. So the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, has peace with God And it has peace because it has experienced God's mercy. Mercy, what is mercy? Mercy is when you show compassion to someone in your power. And isn't that what God has done to us? By nature, we all deserve God's wrath. None of us here is exempt from that. So as soon as he refers to mercy in verse 16, it automatically excludes merit. By definition, mercy and merit cannot coexist because they are fundamentally opposed. Mercy implies that there was sin in your life which was punishable, but that it has been forgiven. And that is why mercy and merit can never coexist. They always exclude each other because once you have mercy, then merit does not come into the picture anymore. It's another one of those words that is deeply rooted in the Old Testament and uh, comes out also um, at the birth of Jesus. We read in Luke chapter 1, when Jesus was born, his mother Mary said, God has helped his servant Israel, listen to this carefully in light of what we just talked about, God has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. She, see, she is a perceptive lady. She is a perceptive lady. She has made all of these connections herself, and Jesus hasn't even carried out his ministry yet but she sees it was all about him and it is in him that God is fulfilling all of these promises so the very word mercy here connects us again to these promises that God made to Abraham through Christ God has redefined who his people are he's redefined the true Israel the true Israel is all those who have received his mercy through faith in Christ and he's also redefined the true Israelite we'll pay attention to that in our next point Maybe you're sitting here today, reflecting on your life in light of this text, and feeling a sense of failure. Well, if you do, you're in good company. Failure was a constant characteristic of God's people in the past, all the way to the exile, the ultimate failure of their society and their way of life. And that's why God promised a servant, even through the prophets who, who warned the people of the coming judgment and the exile, God promised a servant, the true Israel, the one who would not fail, but who would obey him perfectly. And this formation of a servant um, being formed, in a sense, in the history of Israel is expressed particularly clearly in the so-called servant songs in the prophecy of Isaiah, these outline with growing clarity what God's true servant would be like. And they were all fulfilled in Christ. He retraced everything that God's people should have done but failed to do, and he did it perfectly. He was the true Israelite. Jesus took the whole burden of the law on himself, including circumcision. He was also circumcised as a child, but more than that, he underwent Everything that circumcision represented, because it pointed to the judgment of God as well. The circumcision of Christ was that he was cut off from life altogether. So circumcision was only ever relevant insofar as it pointed to Christ and and to what he did. And so a true Israelite in the spiritual sense is one who believes in Christ. And again, reflected in Romans as well, it's Once you read Galatians, once you understand Galatians, you read Romans afterwards, everything is crystal clear. It makes total sense. And in Romans, Paul writes as well, Romans chapter 2, he says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And later on in chapter four, he says, Abram is a father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. See, it's crystal clear, it makes total sense. Physical circumcision is no substitute for faith. Ishmael was born of Abraham. Ishmael was circumcised. Ishmael did not have the faith. Ishmael did not receive the promised blessing. So it's not about the mark of circumcision. Paul has a different mark, the mark of Jesus. It refers to that in verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, most likely he's referring to the scars of his persecution. He referred to that in his second letter to the Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to this. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, one time, once I was stoned. And you remember that the stoning was described in Acts 14 verse 19, which we read from a, a number of weeks ago. So you think those would have left scars behind. Being lashed, being beaten with rods, being stoned, and all the other stuff that he went through—there, there were scars that came with that. And he says these are the marks of Jesus. Now, there's a bit of a double meaning here. Um, in those days, the other there were other people that were marked, like that word "mark" has an existing meaning, and often what it referred to was um, the branding on a slave. And um, that didn't happen often in this time period, but it did happen if you had a slave that ran away and you wanted to make sure that, 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 you know, everybody knew he was yours. If you got him back, you would brand him on his forehead or her. And it was considered a sign of great disgrace. It wasn't until later on after Paul that that actually became a common practice. You know, the, the Roman, Greco-Roman culture was cruel. There was no mercy there. And the other... Um, Way that the word was used was to refer to tattoos. You know, tattoos back then meant that you um, were connected to a particular, well, either to the army if you were a soldier, or you were connected to a god. You know, if you went to worship at the temple of Asclepius, let's say the god of healing, you'd get tattooed with a tattoo of Asclepius to show that you belonged to him. So, so Paul has taken this word which has some currency in his own language and he's saying, Look, here's my. Marking, here's my branding, my tattooing, so to speak, is the marks of my persecution. Now, what he writes here, in a sense, applies to himself, right? But his sufferings were unique because they were part of a unique ministry. But the basic principle of marking applies to us all. We have the mark of, of baptism. We were all baptized. We we were marked with a symbol of judgment and of cleansing. The judgment was poured out on Christ. And so this judgment on Christ, represented in baptism, is also a sign of God's mercy to us. Through baptism, we're legally united with Christ in His death. Romans 6 verse 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So as we respond to His death in our life, we, we are raised with Him. We are separate from the world. He's already said that you're separate from the world, and now He calls us to live out of that separation every day, every day that we live out of this new life. And the world knows that and hates it. The world hates Christ. It hates everything that has to do with Christ. If you live for Christ... The world hates you as well. And so we cannot expect to be exempt from suffering for the sake of Christ in some form. It's always been the case for the people of God that they have suffered. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. It looks back on the history of God's people and it shows the history of God's people is a history of suffering. Yes, there were also some who who triumphed in their own circumstances, but it was always a triumph that went with suffering. And so this peace and mercy in Israel or for Israel does not exclude suffering. It is a peace between us and God. It is, so it is an objective peace. It is a peace which when we understand it, we live out of it. it. It shapes our life internally, but it does not exempt us from suffering. It is a given that all of us will suffer for the gospel. Do you realize that? All of us will suffer for the gospel, every single one of us. Many of us will, some of us may suffer outright persecution, maybe not everyone, direct suffering for the gospel, but others will suffer indirectly because there are choices that we need to make that are shaped by the gospel. Those choices may have difficult consequences in our lives. Those choices may cause suffering, and that is also suffering in a way for the sake of the gospel. Many different examples could be mentioned. You could think of for example, someone who um, loses a, a promotion or maybe even, even a job for a refusal to work on the Sunday or a refusal to, to compromise Christian values and business dealings. Sometimes there's a very low-profile kind of suffering. Imagine, for example, a spouse who, who develops Alzheimer's. And the spouse is put in a care home. But the husband or wife who, who's married to this person... Um, um, it does not have that condition. And so, in a sense, their spouse is in a care home now, and, uh, and uh, they, still, you know, they still live their life. And it would be very easy for them to leave the spouse in the care home to, to remarry, to get on with life. But a true believer does not do that. They continue to live faithfully. And we have had examples of that kind of faithful living also in our own bonds of churches, bond of churches, well, bonds, even if you think of our sister churches, you know, these things happen often. And uh, it's, it's very low profile and you need to look for it sometimes to find it and to really reflect and to, to get out of your own life, so to speak, and to think about others. But it is there for us to see. And the youth, the youth can suffer for the gospel as well. The letter to the Hebrews has a powerful illustration here of the life of Moses. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, so he's a young man, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the the reproach of Christ, the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So Moses, in a sense, had it made. You know, he could, have, he could have enjoyed the fleeting pleasures of sin at Pharaoh's court for a, for a short while, but he gave that up. And he had a life of suffering in the desert leading God's people. And you know, the, I mean, even before him, Joseph, right? We all know the story of Joseph, another example of someone who, who had to learn to live with suffering. And so the question to us and also to our youth is are we willing to suffer? Are we willing to suffer? And if we do, do we are we willing to do it with a? Are we willing to see it as a privilege? Are we willing to do it with the right attitude? Do we see suffering as a confirmation that we belong to Christ? Do we see it as something that should be expected in the life of a true spiritual Israelite? Now, maybe you might say, "Well, Rev, I'm not suffering right now." The time when you're not suffering is a time to prepare for when you will suffer. Our problem is that too often we're apathetic and passive in our faith life. Isn't it true? There's apathy among some in our own circles as well. We're sometimes apathetic about attending worship services regularly, apathetic about reading the Bible together, apathetic about congregational events. And if we're apathetic now, when we have everything going for us, what will we do when there is a crisis? What will you do? What are you going to do? If you're not willing to be spiritually present when things are going well in this time of grace that the Lord is giving you, then what will you do when things fall apart? And we had an illustration of this last week. So often we, we treat the warnings and admonitions of Scripture in the same way that we treat bushfire warnings. We're all told to be prepared for bushfires, but how many people take that seriously? Last week, there was a bushfire in Jaredale. Some of you live in Jaredale. You know. And you know. It was, it was close. Were you prepared? Did you have a plan? Were you able to calmly see this thing coming? Were you able to deal with it? Then it's true. Um, everything went okay. And to my knowledge, there was no loss of life or, or property. But what if the wind had turned? What if it had ripped through the town? What if you had lost everything? What if you would have come to church today out of an evacuation center? What then? Would you know how to respond to that? And maybe the answer is no. And and you know this is a parable. This is a parable of how so many people go through life regarding faith. They assume everything will work out. They don't give it too much thought. They put in the minimum amount of thought, and then when suffering does come, they're totally unprepared. You know, consider the great difficulty through which the gospel was brought to you. Consider the enormous suffering also of people like the Apostle Paul. And You think about this letter in a way uh, of its history through the centuries. This is a letter that is drenched in blood. People have died over the things that we have been reading about in the last... Year and five months. So, is the gospel precious to you? Do you have a corresponding joy in it? Do you see its value? If you, if you look at where people invest, that's also where their heart is at. And our Lord said, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, where's your treasure? Verse 14 tells us we are already totally separated from the world. Remember we talked about that when we talked about verse 14 the last time. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That cross is the dividing line. We are already separated. So the world will sometimes persecute that. It will reject us. And now if you think about it, if we are accepted by the world, also in matters of faith, if The world does not take our faith seriously. Is that because maybe we have not taken our faith seriously? So we should ask ourselves, how does the gospel make a difference in our lives? How do our lives show that we are Christians? If you did not have the gospel, would your life be any different? Or would you still live exactly as you do now, maybe with a few less restraints? Or again, if you were to die tomorrow, would the people around you know less about who Christ is because you were missing from their lives? Or have you lived in such a way that it would make no difference at all whether you're here or not? Now these are pointed questions, and maybe they leave leave us with a sense of guilt. But the point of this letter is not to end on a note of guilt. You know, the Galatians had every reason to feel guilty about their faithlessness, but that's not where Paul leaves them. He rebukes them for sure, but then look at his closing words. Words of grace, gospel words. Verse 18, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Through Christ God has redefined who his people are. He's revealed himself as a God of grace, grace which he gives through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word brothers then highlights God's love and drawing us into one family. And with that comes peace. Not just objective peace with God, but also subjective. Peace that you can experience on the level of your spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. And that grace is where this letter leaves us. God is a God of grace. May he enable us all to experience that grace in our spirits as well. Amen.